Welcome to Grace Covenant Church, D.C. You're listening to our weekly sermon podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this message. Well, good morning, Grace Covenant. How are we doing this morning? Great to be with you. As Pastor Marianne mentioned, I studied mathematics, and then my wife and I had six children. And so I don't know if you know this, but the first command in the Bible is to be fruitful and... Yeah, so we never really got past that one. We just kind of landed right there. By the way, if you are new around here to Grace Covenant, I just want to encourage you, this is a great place to get plugged in. Uh, Pastor Donnell and Marianne, they are the real deal. The team here is amazing. And so if you really want to grow, if you want to learn about God, if you want to follow him, this is a great place. I encourage you to lean in. This is really a great house. Now, my family's not with me this morning, so I wanted to show you a quick picture And this is my crew Uh, on my left. So it's on the right on the picture is my wife, Jennifer. We met in college, as Pastor Marianne mentioned. She was a music major. I was a math major. So we just kind of met in the middle of the campus. And then on the other side of me is my wife, Clara. Looks like her mom. She's 20 years old. She's going into her second year studying music in Los Angeles. She's actually a part of one of our Every Nation churches in LA with Pastor Dehan. Some of you may know him. And then uh, on... Next to her, the one who looks like me, that's Haley. She just graduated from high school and she's gonna be going to school at Augusta University where we also have an Every Nation Church. It's gonna be plugging in there, really excited about that. In the hat, that's my daughter Miriam. She's the athlete in the family, uh, runs track. Any track people out there this morning? All right, a few of you ran the 400. So she got to run in the pin relays this past year. That was really awesome. In the middle is my son, Calvin. So happy about Calvin. He's a fellow nerd. (laughs) Just makes me real warm and fuzzy on the inside. He loves math and science and all of that, so that's great. Then next to him is Peter. Peter's a bit of a wild card. You never quite know what you're going to get with Peter on any given morning. He's been discovering his culinary skills recently, so he started baking a cake uh, that he calls his miracle cake. And so if you come to our house, maybe you can get some miracle cake. And then last but certainly not least is Victoria. And she is an amazingly humorous individual. When she was around three years old, my wife took a picture of her and then she said, send it to me. (laughs) So my wife said, well, you don't have email. And she said, yeah, but I want to email it to my friends. So my wife said, well, your friends don't have email either. But when you're three and that's what everybody else is doing, that's what you want to do. So she's already a teenager. That's basically what it is with her. Well, this morning, I'm helping to kick off a new series titled His Field, and our primary text for this, scripture, or for this series rather, comes out of Matthew chapter 9. Let's go ahead and read it. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's just pause a moment and pray. Father, we love you. Lord, it is an honor to be together in your presence. Father, your presence makes all the difference. God, in the greatest of moments, in the most tragic of moments, Lord, if you are present, we can be whole we can be renewed, we can be restored. Father, we ask for your presence in 
El Paso, Dayton. God, we thank you that you are present with us. Lord, that you are a light in the darkness. And now, God, today, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus looks at this crowd of harassed and helpless people, and he sees a harvest. He sees a harvest. The harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. You know, Jesus had this ability to see opportunity where nobody else was seeing opportunity. Have you ever missed an opportunity that was right in front of you? You've probably heard of Steve Jobs. He was the genius founder of Apple. And you may have heard of Steve Wozniak. He was his good friend, an expert in computers who co-founded Apple with him. You may not have heard of Ronald Wayne. Ronald Wayne was the third co-founder of Apple. And two weeks after Apple launched, he sold his share of the company, about 10%, forget this, $800. Do you know what that would be worth today? About $40 billion. Sometimes we miss the opportunities that are right in front of us. But Jesus saw value where nobody else saw value. And for this reason, people flocked to him. In fact, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, the Pharisees saw a crowd of unclean people, people who, in their minds, were obviously rejected by God. But Jesus saw opportunity. In fact, not only did the Pharisees miss the opportunity, they were positively troubled by Jesus' actions. Jesus was welcoming these people and even sharing meals with them. Now, in the first century, sharing a meal with another person was a big deal. Here's how one scholar puts it. To invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. So here's Jesus, who's been claiming to speak on behalf of God, and he's welcoming these tax collectors and sinners into brotherhood in God's kingdom. Now, this infuriated the Pharisees. We may think it's cool, but that was scandalous in Jesus' day. I mean, people hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were essentially becoming rich off of their own countrymen. And Jesus was welcoming these people and even having meals with them. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a series of parables in order to defend this practice. He begins this way. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses just one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, do you have any idea how much a sheep weighs? Well over a hundred pounds. And when a sheep gets separated from the rest of the flock, it's not going anywhere. It's not moving. So this shepherd, when he finds the sheep, has to pick this ridiculous thing up, put it on his shoulder, and carry it home. It's like some sort of first century world's strongest man event or something. And yet, even though there's still work to be done, he celebrates. Because the sheep matters to him. The sheep matters to him. 
A second parable. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. See, in the first century, a typical peasant did not have very much money on hand. The village would make their own food and make their own clothes. And so money was a scarce resource. So when she loses her coin, it's a big deal. And Jesus says that she sweeps the whole house until she finds it. And when she finds it, she gathers together her friends and her family and her neighbors and says, celebrate with me, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Well, Jesus says, this is a picture of heaven. This is a picture of heaven. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus pursued tax collectors and sinners because even in the midst of their failures and their misfortunes, they mattered to him. They mattered to him. And they should matter to us. Now, Jesus actually tells a third parable the famous parable of the prodigal son. In this story, we encounter a significant difference. Let me explain. A son comes to his father and makes the unthinkable demand for his inheritance while the father is still living. That was effectively saying, Father, I wish you were already dead. Now, shockingly, the father gives him what he asks for. And the son takes his money and he goes to a faraway country and lives however he wants to live. Now, at this point in the story, we are prone to overlook something very significant. The passivity of the older brother. The passivity of the older brother. Here's how one scholar describes it. At this point, the Middle Eastern listener or reader expects the older son to enter the story verbally and take up the traditional role of reconciler. Breaks in relationships are always healed through a third party. The third party is selected on the basis of the closeness of the relationship to each side. In this case, the role of reconciler is thrust upon the older son by all the pressures of custom and community. His silence means refusal. And so in this case, a son is lost and nobody pursues. See, the sheep is lost and the shepherd goes looking for the sheep. A coin is lost and the woman goes looking for the coin, but a brother is lost and nobody goes looking. Now it becomes increasingly clear as Jesus goes on in this parable that he's talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And unfortunately, many religious people since that time They didn't pursue their brothers and their sisters. But friends, thank God this was not the case with Jesus. This was not the case with Jesus. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as we've read already in Matthew chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you know that following Jesus means valuing what he values? It means loving the people that he loves. It means making his mission our mission. Friends, this is a big deal. God has called it to us. Now, how do we do this practically? How do we do this? Now, that's a big question. But here's the good news. It's not as far away as you may think. It's not as far away as you may think. God has been preparing you for your field. God has been preparing you for your field. 
Consider for a moment the call of Peter. Mark records it for us. Listen to how Jesus calls Peter into the harvest field. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, do you know why Jesus called Mark, excuse me, Peter to fish for people? Because he was a fisherman. That's why Jesus used that metaphor. Jesus wanted Peter to see this call that I have for you is not so far away as you may think. This field that you've been used to walking in your whole life, it's not so different from the field I'm calling you now to walk in. As you already heard, my background is mathematics. And when I was an undergraduate studying math and physics, one of the courses that was required for me was an introduction to computer programming course. So I can remember one day, we're going over some homework. We had been given a few lines of code, a little algorithm, and we were supposed to determine what the output of that algorithm would be. So the professor gives the answer, and I remember thinking in that moment, nope, that's not right. And so I raised my hand and I said, no, 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 it's not going to be that, it's going to be this. Well, the professor disagreed. So I backed up and tried again, this time with a little bit more explanation. And the next thing you know, we're kind of going back and forth in this class discussing this. And the rest of the class is watching kind of like a tennis match as we kind of lob arguments back and forth at each other. Well, eventually, the professor says, oh, yeah, you're right. I see it. I don't know what I was thinking. The output's going to be what you said. Now, in that moment, my head went, I kind of wanted to take my homework and like spike it and do a dance, you know, like, yeah, baby, it went. But do you know what? Right in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said to me, I want you to continue to do what you just did, but with the gospel. With the gospel. Now, notice, Jesus didn't call me to be a fisher of men. Do you know why? Because I don't fish. But he did call me to help other people understand the program of the gospel. Now, what's your background? What do you study? Medicine? Sociology? Athletics? Maybe you're a mom. Maybe you're a dad. What's your world? Because Jesus wants to use the field that you've already been walking in to call you into mission. Jesus calls us based on the fields we've been walking in. Now, not only that, God makes himself known to us in the fields that we're walking in. God makes himself known to us in the fields that we've been walking in. You know, there are only a couple of instances in the Gospels in which Jesus recognizes somebody for having great faith. One of these examples is recorded for us in Luke chapter 7. So let's just take a moment and read it. Luke 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This centurion had great faith. Do you know where he got his revelation that led to this great faith? From his work. From his work. The centurion says, oh, I understand authority. I'm a man under authority, and I've got people under my authority. And so I recognize the authority in this man, and I know when I speak, things happen. Therefore, Jesus, you only need to speak the word, and my servant will be healed. Where did he get that kind of understanding? From his work. God wants to make himself known in the fields in which we are already walking. My background is mathematics. You may think to yourself, there is no way that mathematics has anything to do with theology and Bible study and spirituality, but you would be wrong. You would be wrong. In 1960, a man named Eugene Wigner, he was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, actually an agnostic religiously, wrote a very significant essay titled, get this, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. You get an extra gold star if you can remember that by the end of the sermon. <laughs> the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. And in this essay, he asked three big questions. Number one, why should natural laws exist at all? Like the law of gravitation. Why should these exist at all? Why should not everything just be completely chaotic and unpredictable? And number two, he said, given that natural laws do exist, why should human beings have the mental capacity to discover them and understand them? Do you know how many species of living organisms are on the earth today? About 8.7 million. Do you know how many species have the ability to contemplate the laws of nature? One. One, we don't need that ability to survive and reproduce. Why in the world should not these natural laws just be so far beyond us that we will never get them? Your dog will never understand the laws of nature. It's never going to happen. If you can get him to go to the bathroom outside, you're already winning. <laughs> Why should we have the mental capacity to understand the laws of nature? And thirdly, and where he spends the most time in his essay is this. Why should mathematics which was not pursued for the purpose of describing the laws of nature, why should it be so effective in being able to describe the laws of nature? Now, let me give you a little insight. You may not know this, but mathematicians and physicists have very different goals. Mathematicians, they just want to create worlds of mathematics in which they can ask really interesting questions and come up with very beautiful solutions. It's almost like playing a big game in a make-believe world. Now, physicists, on the other hand, they're trying to understand the universe that we actually live in. 
They're not attempting to create and talk about new worlds. So these are very different goals. Yet, it turns out that this game that mathematicians have been playing, so to speak, is eerily effective in describing the natural world. Why should that be? Here's how Albert Einstein puts the question. How is it possible that mathematics, a product of human thought that is independent of experience, fits so excellently the objects of physical reality? Another famous physicist, Paul Dirac, wrote this. It seems to be one of the fundamental features of nature that fundamental physical laws are described in terms of mathematical theory of great beauty and power, needing quite a high standard of mathematics for one to understand it. One could perhaps describe the situation by saying that God is a mathematician of a very high order, and he used very advanced mathematics in constructing the universe. Our feeble attempts at mathematics enable us to understand a bit of the universe, and as we proceed to develop higher and higher mathematics, we can hope to understand the universe better. In one of the most surprising moments in human history, it turns out that God is a mathematician. <laughs> now, here's the good news. He's also an expert in economics and medicine and music and the arts and athletics, and whatever your field may be. Friends, your field is God's field. And he wants to make himself known to you in the field that you are already walking in. And this reality makes possible a very important principle in going to work in God's harvest field. And it's this, identification. Identification. See, although Jesus and the Pharisees worked from the same set of scriptures and really had a lot of theological agreement on many different topics, their posture toward the world was very different. The Pharisees were attempting to separate themselves from the rest of the world. In fact, the very word Pharisee is derived from a Hebrew term meaning separatist. Pharisees didn't want to be defiled by the unclean people in the world. And so on one occasion, a Pharisee's got Jesus over to his home for dinner, and he sees an unclean woman coming into contact with Jesus. And here's what he thinks. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. On another occasion, Jesus began a parable this way. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisees completely disassociated themselves from the very people God wanted to reach. Jesus didn't do that. He entered our world and identified with us. In fact, there's a very important passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about this. Lean into this with me for a moment. 
Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, Jesus identified with us all the way down our humanity, the things that we feel, our pain. Jesus identified with us and he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Friends, he's climbed in our boats and has eaten meals in our homes. He's welcomed our children. He's put his hands on our broken bodies. Jesus cares for the people and he identified with them. Now Jesus walked in their fields and he showed the people of his day that God was also walking in their fields. Now, in my experience, most mathematicians do not realize that God is a mathematician. And because of this, to them, oftentimes, God can just feel really distant if he exists at all. But see, if you're a mathematician and God has made himself known to you and you get in a relationship with a mathematician, now, all of a sudden, things begin to shift. The very fact that you're in this person's world and you know God, all of a sudden opens up that person to know God as well. When I was in my final year of my PhD, I connected with a student who was a first-year graduate student in mathematics. And he came from a background, he had a small seed of faith, but it had been withering for a long time. He just didn't know anybody else who was a fellow mathematician who really knew God. And so it began to feel to him like God was distant, like God didn't know his world, or maybe that God didn't exist at all. So when we connected, I didn't even have to say very much, but the very fact that God was alive on the inside of me and was making himself known in my life, when he got near to me, something came alive on the inside of him. Right When people identify with us and see that God is at work in our lives, something comes alive on the inside of them. Identification. You know, people have a desperate need to be understood. Ultimately, we want to be known by God. Even if we don't know that consciously, we have a desperate need to be known and understood. One of the greatest gifts you can give to another person is to take the time to really know them and understand them. Oh, it changes what happens on the inside. Maybe some of you have read a book called Never Split the Difference. It's written by a man named Chris Voss, who for many years was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. That's an interesting job. And what he discovered over the years that the best way forward was not some just big show of force, Rather, it was communicating to his adversary that he understood him and could identify with him, even if they didn't have the same worldview, even if he disagreed with the reasons they gave for doing what they were doing, if he could show that he understood them and understood where they were coming from, his defenses would just begin to come down and everything would shift. 
We've got a deep need to be known and understood. And friends, when you realize that God is present in the field that you're walking in, and you begin to connect with other people who are walking in that same field, and you begin to show them that you understand them and can identify with them, then they are able to take that step of not just identifying with you, but identifying with Jesus. Connect. Recognize that God is already walking in the field that you've been walking in. And after you connect with people, what do you do next? You give away what you have received. You give away what you have received. This is essentially what Jesus did all throughout his ministry. He just gave to us what the Father had given to him. Listen to what Jesus says the night before he died on the cross. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Do you see what he's doing? He's showing them the path to life. He says, this is the life I've known and lived. I I walk in obedience to the Father, and it brings love and life, and I'm giving this same gift to you. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Love, joy, truth, obedience, everything that Jesus learned and received and knew from the father, he gave to us. This is what we're called to do. Walk with the people around you. Identify with them. And then give away what you have received. Give people your testimony. Do you know that's a gift from God? Your story is a gift from God. Look, none of us are perfect. All of us have failures. If you're afraid to share your story because you still see failure in your life, here's what you do. You just repent, receive God's forgiveness, and then go tell somebody about this forgiving God. (laughs) Don't be ashamed of your testimony. It's a gift of God for you to give away to somebody else. What about prayer? You know, prayer is a gift. Prayer is a gift that you can give to other people. In Romans 8, Paul writes for us an amazing passage. Listen to what he says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is crazy. Jesus is sitting next to the Father, continually talking to the Father on our behalf. We have an advocate with God. Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf. Do you know we can give that same gift to other people? That we can go to the Father on the behalf of other people and speak to the Father, and not just in their absence, but also in their presence. I want to encourage you to pray for people. Look, people are open. They will receive it from you. It's an amazing thing. Have you ever had somebody pray for you in your presence? Isn't it encouraging? Doesn't it bring life? If you will look for opportunities, you will have opportunities every day to pray for somebody. You can just pause in a moment. Hey, is it okay if I pray for you really quickly? Don't be weird, right? Don't start rebuking and binding and, you know, casting out. I know none of you do that, but if you, maybe your friend who does that. Just pray for people. It's an amazing gift. It's a gift of God. 
Not only that, God has given you spiritual gifts. Did you know that? If you're a follower of Jesus, God has given you spiritual gifts that he expects you to give away to other people. Paul says this in Romans 12. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. God has given you something to give away to other people, even the hard things in your life. Even the hard things in your life, you're still here. God is still with you. Don't waste your pain. Share it with somebody else. Remind them that God is present. Even in the midst of tragedy, connect with people. Let them see that God is already walking in their fields and then give away what you have received. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we worship you in this place. Father, you have given us so much. You've given us so much. Maybe you're here today and you know you haven't really received the gift that God has for you. Maybe you have some kind of religious background, maybe none at all. But in this moment, you're thinking, I want a God like that. I want his purpose for my life. I want to walk in the freedom that he offers me. I need God. If that's you today, I just want to encourage you to take a simple step. To take a moment right now in your seat to say to God, here I am. I want your way. I don't want to go my own way any longer. I want your way, Jesus. Have my life. Lord God, I thank you that when we take these simple steps, Lord, you are right there to meet us. And Lord, I thank you that today you're calling us into the mission field. Lord God, it's the places we're already walking. Lord, you're making yourself known in those places. God, like Isaiah, we say, here am I. Send me. Send me, Lord. I'm ready, oh God, to pray for somebody, to share my story with somebody, to encourage somebody, to give away what I've received. Here I am, God. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us wherever we go. Lord, we pray, send us as workers into your harvest field. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church or to watch video sermons, visit gracecovdc.org.